Father, now give us open hearts to hear your word. May we be encouraged. We live in a fearful time for most of us, Lord, the most uncertain days of our lives. So comfort us, strengthen us by your word, clear our vision. Give us fresh determination and fresh will to trust you, to do as you say, knowing that when we do, we will always, however we suffer, whatever it costs, we will actually be blessed and we will be safe. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. It must have been very sobering for a young man who had a temperament given to tears to read these words. I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. Those words, of course, at the end of Paul's final letter. The final letter we have in Scripture from him. Likely the only, uh, the last letter he ever had the opportunity to write anyone the second letter he sent to Timothy. As I'm going to show you, Timothy had a temperament given to tears. He was uncertain. Paul had placed him in a difficult situation to lead a new church in right teaching, to make sure that they had proper leadership, specifically to kindly and gently correct false teachers to protect this brand new flock. And Timothy wasn't like Paul. If you've read the book of Acts and if you've read his letters, if you can imagine uh, Paul's temperament compared with the temperament of a young man given to tears, Paul uh, does not seem encumbered by any doubt that God will go ahead of him, that God will vindicate him. At the end of this same letter, he speaks of a man named Alexander who has done Paul great harm. And he tells Timothy with literally his closing words, you watch out for him as well. Paul now, having done everything that Jesus had entrusted to him, saying with confidence, my fight is over, my race is done, I have kept the faith until the very end because, and he's using gentle language, the Roman Empire will soon come to take him from captivity and kill him, and now Timothy will be left alone. I'd like to propose to you the simple idea that in difficult days of uncertainty of your own, when you can't see the way forward, one of the best things you can do is look back. It's been well over a year that we have been, as a country and as a congregation, as families and individuals, plunged into the uncertainty, the suffering, the chaos, the unpredictability of this pandemic. I visit at least once a week with a lady in our congregation who has reached the blessed, amazing age of 97 years old. She got her first job in May of 1941, which, as you may know, was a pretty big year in America. The war, the war broke up after that, or shortly after that. She was raised by a man who was a policeman in Chicago in the 20s. And I'm telling you that to say these are the craziest times she's ever seen. She routinely asks me, have you ever seen anything like this? And I say, no, if you haven't, I certainly have. 
no idea what's going on. And if your family and your mind is anything like my own, you've been racked with times of uncertainty, times of complaint, times of resentment, times of fear. Your relationships are frayed perhaps by all that's gone on and the way people have decided to behave in the midst of all of this. What do you do in times of difficulty, even if it's not a global pandemic? What do you do in times of uncertainty and personal suffering? What do you do when you can't see the way forward? I'm going to suggest to you that you look back. That is what Paul is continually telling Timothy in his second letter. And on this Mother's Day, I would especially encourage and I have especially prayed for you moms and for you women who serve as spiritual moms to so many to look back to find strength for your own journey, to look back and then with the confidence of God's promises, paint a picture of a better future based on God's promises for those in your care, whether they're your children, your grandchildren, or in the family of the faith that is this congregation or elsewhere, God has given you people who look to you as a spiritual mother. Paul is going to share with Timothy, and I'll take from his letter the idea of the power of a good example. The power of a godly example in difficult times can literally shape lives and save them and change them. Look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to show you Paul's opening words to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 4, Paul writes, As I remember your tears... I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. Don't miss this, anybody. Don't miss this, moms. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is extraordinary, and it's the only example I can find in Scripture of a third-generation Christian. Something incredible has happened in Timothy's family. His grandmother apparently was the first to believe. She must have shared the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus with Timothy's mother. And Timothy is one of those precious few in the first century within the lifetime of the people who knew Jesus to actually be raised in the Christian faith. What blessing does that afford to people like Timothy? What difference can you moms, what difference can you parents make? The first thing a powerful and a godly example does for us is it teaches us to put our trust in God when we are still children. In the very first words of his letter, Paul says to Timothy, the first thing I think about when I think about you is what? Study the Bible with me for a second. He gets the greeting out of the way. He has a customary greeting. And then he says, when I think of you, I am reminded of what? Your tears. What kind of pastor is this? In the very first substantive thing that Paul says to Timothy after the customary greeting, you can think of ancient epistles, the epistles in the Bible like present day emails. They always say who wrote them and who they're writing to in the, at the top. From and to right in the beginning of the epistle. With that customary Christian blessing and greeting out of the way, Paul says, I serve God with a clear conscience. 
But now that I'm thinking of you, what I remember about you first is you cry a lot. That's how I read it. I've had a pastoral mentor. I still do. A man used to sit in my office named Bruce Melton, my pastor. And I still have the chair I used to sit in when he would chew me up. Sometimes I look at that chair and think of just the privilege I have of sitting and writing sermons at what to me will always be his desk. How sobering it must have been to Timothy to receive this final letter of blessing and instruction and charge and farewell and say, the first thing my mentor, the man who has shaped me in the faith, the one who put me in the apostleship, gave me apostolic ministry beside him, the first thing he thinks about me is my tears. But look at the comfort that Paul gives him here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. In other words, Timothy, I know you're crying, but I remember as I think of you that for all your tears, your faith is real, your trust in Jesus is real, because that faith was first in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and now he says, I am sure dwells in you as well. Moms, parents, spiritual parents, spiritual moms and dads, do not squander the opportunity of teaching other people to trust in Jesus when they're still children. It will make a lifetime of difference. If anybody is looking to you as a spiritual parent, if you're a young mom and you still have the blessing of having young, moldable hearts at home, do not miss the opportunity to have a sincere faith in God that you pass on to your kids. This has meant more to me as I've grown older because I was raised in the church. My grandpa was... My grandpa was a mess. He was alcoholic, he was violent, he was lazy. He was a scoundrel until Jesus came in and saved him. And he was so dramatically and powerfully changed that he immediately started preaching the gospel. He was so excited about the facts that Jesus died for sinners like him and could forgive all sin and give people a place in the family of God and welcome them into heaven, not because of anything they could do, but because of what Jesus had done. My grandpa was so excited about all that. His early sermons weren't even very accurate. He had Jesus arrested, crucified, and risen all again in the garden of, all of it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He preached an early sermon on the book of Job. <laughs> he studied it carefully, but he'd never been to church long enough to hear somebody read the name aloud. He thought the man's name was Job. And an older lady in the congregation came and gently told him, that was a wonderful sermon. You got the text right, but it's pronounced Job. Thank you, ma'am. So because I was raised in that environment with three generations of faith by the time I came along, I sometimes regretted not having one of the dramatic testimonies you sometimes hear at youth camp. Are you familiar with these? I was a bank robber. I killed nine men before I was 12 years old. I was an arsonist and a dog thief and all kinds of terrible things. I regretted not having a testimony like my own grandfather. But as I've grown older and as I've pastored people, I've come to realize that to me, the blessing was not Jesus rescuing me from trouble, but Jesus, by his grace, keeping me out of trouble. 
and giving me a life that now in middle age I can look back with very few regrets. All of those regrets my fault in spite of the example I was given. However old your children or your grandchildren are, the people that you're a spiritual parent to, if they're still listening to you, do not squander the opportunity to give them faith. You simply don't know. Some of you have come here and it's disappointing to you to celebrate, to mention Mother's Day because your children are breaking your heart. Your grandchildren are so far from God. Don't ever, ever, ever give up. The faith that they do not presently have in God, they very well may catch from you years later when God in his kindness and gentleness breaks them and hurts them just enough to humble their pride and get them back to him. Don't grow bitter. Don't grow discouraged. Don't grow resentful. You keep living your faith. And whenever they're listening, for as long as they're listening, you do your part as Eunice and Lois did in the part of Timothy. Paul says to him, I remember your tears, but the first thing I want you to remember, Timothy, the first thing I think about when I think of you is how often you cry. I want you to remember that you have a sincere faith, and I know that because I saw it first in your grandma and your mom. Where's dad? Not in the picture. Don't know if he died, don't know if he was a pagan who refused to believe in Jesus, but for Timothy, that was enough. And the second thing Paul tells him, continuing down the paragraph, is that the power of a godly example is it helps us to discover who we are in God's family. Once we put our faith in Jesus, we need the vision and we need the love of spiritual mentors to help us discover who we are now that we are in the family of God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 now. For this reason, in other words, because you're a third generation Christian, because you have a sincere faith, which I remember not only in your life, but the life of your grandma and your mom, because you have that legacy is what Paul means. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, this is very special and very unique. Paul is a miracle-working apostle, and Paul says to Timothy, when God called you into his ministry, I was part of it. I put my hands on you. In other words, I ordained you. God used me to set you apart for the ministry of the gospel. He's helping Timothy see the way forward by looking backward. Your ministry is real, your gifts are real, your calling is real. What's happening is you've let the flame get very, very low. I want you to fire up. You have the gift of God in your life. I want you to get that blazing again. I was there, Timothy. I ordained you. I was one who prayed over you and publicly recognized you not only as God's child, but also as God's servant. All of that is very special and very unique to Timothy and Paul. But then he's going to say something extraordinary that is true of all Christians. Verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When the pandemic broke out, I remember that I, along with pastors all across the country, we didn't consult each other. It just seemed obvious that this is one of the truths that the people of God needed reminding. 
God has not given his family a spirit of fear. What he has given us instead is what? Spirit of what? Power. Love. Self-control. Quick Bible study for you. Look how complete the work of God is in the life of every Christian. Power to get things done. Love to make sure that the things that you get done are the right things. And self-control so that you don't lose them. Because you can wreck your life having done much good if you don't have self-control all the way to the end. Verse 7 is true of all believers. This word gift or gave is the same word in the New Testament of grace. It speaks of undeserved favor. There's nothing special about Paul and Timothy in this regard. All Christians are given by God, not a spirit of fear. God doesn't want you to fear sin anymore. He doesn't want you to fear your past anymore. He doesn't want you to fear his judgment anymore. You deserved his judgment when you were far from him. But now the weight of your sin and its penalty has fallen on his son Jesus because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God loves you that much. You're now in his family and you are no longer to live in fear. You have been given and you can cultivate, but it's not the point here. The point is not that you cultivate and grow into these things. The point that Paul is making to Timothy is that God in his goodness has graciously given to you, if you'll spare or if you'll pardon a redundancy, God gave you as a gift, not as an attainment. Not as an achievement. God has already given every one of his children a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Let me ask you, Christian, do you feel powerful? Do you feel loving? And do you walk in self-control? Did you hear how mixed the reaction was? The reaction was essentially not really. This is your birthright. This is who you are in Christ because you are now God's child. You are now God's son. You are now God's daughter. God is your father. Jesus is your older brother by whose death you've been brought into the family. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, which we studied last week and the glorious truth of who God is, he is coming into your, he is coming into your life and given you new life. It's not a new life that you've achieved or that you've learned. No, you were given as a gift from God, spiritual life when you trusted Jesus, just in the same way you were given physical life when you were born. And that new life that you have is one of power and love and self-control. And hardly anybody believes that. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 for most Christians is a good slogan. It's a good verse for pastors to mention in times of personal and national trouble. But most Christians do not really feel that it applies to them. And it is the role of those who are our teachers in the faith of those who set an example for us in whom we see power. In whom we see love who we know have self-control. It is they who help us discover who we are in the family of God. In other words, those who nurture us in the faith help us learn who God has made us. God has put it all in his word. It is all a gift of his spirit. But hardly anybody discovers who they actually are in the family of God until they hear that affirmed and explained and encouraged by someone else. 
Let me give you just a second to prove to yourself that's true. Take just a few seconds to think about who helped you put your faith in Jesus and begin to grow as a Christian. Think of who has encouraged you and told you in times of trouble that yes, you could actually do this. You could be faithful. Yes, you could endure in a difficult marriage. Yes, you could raise your children. Yes, you could face times of illness. Yes, you could be patient in suffering. Yes, you could be faithful when everyone around you was faithless. Do you have those names? I do. I was 18 years old and a choir director in a choir I was in in Mexico. God was just beginning to stir up in me, having brought me back to a real sincere love for him. He was just beginning to move in my life to tell me that I should abandon my plans of studying the law and enter Christian ministry vocationally instead. It was a volunteer choir director who affirmed that. God just put it in his heart. He put his hand on my shoulder, gave me a short paragraph of blessing and affirmation, and here I am all these years later telling you about it because this man who didn't have that close of a relationship with me My heavenly father moved in his life to say, say something encouraging to this kid. Tell him that you can see what he does not believe he can see in himself. Makes all the difference in the world. And if you have names and faces within your own family, within the family of this congregation who came to your mind, who have shown you the way, who have cried with you, who have encouraged you, who have prayed for you, who have done this modeling and this discovery for you, you have been truly and greatly blessed. Your responsibility as a mom, if I may, as a dad, if as a parent, as a spiritual parent, is to help those who God has called into his family figure out in person, up close, the direction that God has for them. Proverbs 22, verse 6, one of the most well-known ideas in Scripture. Proverbs 22, verse 6. If you have it in your notes, uh, please read it with me. It says this. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let me do a quick study with you. First of all, this is a principle. It's not an ironclad promise. This is in the book of Proverbs, which gives you, if you will, rules of thumb. It gives you principles and truths to live by. We all know those who have been raised in the faith, who have been loved and served and cared for well by their parents and by their churches, and who seem, at least at this point in their lives, to have walked away from the path they were so lovingly shown. Everybody know those stories? They happen. Proverbs 22, verse 6, is showing you the responsibility of parents with the encouragement that if you put a child on that path, it will stick with them for life. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And Proverbs also invite reflection. 
They want you to sit there and think, how does this apply? When is this true? And how does this work? Let me suggest two things that Proverbs 22 verse 6 means. Train up a child in the way he should go. The first and the most obvious meaning is that there is a path and his name is Jesus. There is a way and his name we now know is Jesus that a child should walk. Jesus will say many years later, some 1,000 years later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have physical children or spiritual children, your responsibility first is to train them, encourage them, bless them, correct them, confront them, pray for them so that they will walk on the path and stay with it for life. That part is obvious. There's a second application of that same phrase, train up a child in the way he should go, that I think is not the mo- it's not primary, but it's also very important to raising up spiritual children or grandchildren, raising up disciples in the context of this, of this congregation, of this family of faith. And that is, train up a child in the way he should go. First, primary meaning to, to walk with Jesus, to stay on the path with God. But within that path of God, there is a specific way that your child should go. In other words, your son, your daughter, your grandkids, your friend who looks to you for spiritual input, God has a specific path for them. They have gifts and calling and a purpose that is theirs that is not yours. And as a spiritual parent in giving them an example, you can help them learn exactly what that is. I'm living that. I'm in the throes of that right now because God, by his grace, gave my beautiful wife, who does not want to be mentioned this morning, but she's awesome. (laughs) God gave my beautiful wife and I two sons. And neither of them have any interest in the things that interest me. I've got an infantry officer and a biomedical engineer. Do you know what the chances are? Me looking back at my 20-year-old self to think that an infantry officer in the first place and a biomedical engineer even much less would come out where my genetic code would be anywhere in any way involved with producing children who would have that path? Now, why is that? Because that's their path. So you know what I do now? I read a lot of stuff about the army. And it's much, much harder, but I read as much as I can and listen to podcasts trying to understand the brave new frontier of medicine called biomedical engineering. Why? Because that's their path. And whatever your kids and your grandkids are into, if it's not godless, that's what you need to get into. You need to support them. You need to be beside them. Why? Not because you love it, but because you love them. Because you want to keep them on the first and the primary path, which is the path of Jesus. If God grants me life, I want to get really old and watch my younger son build me into a robot to extend my life. I want to be really, really old and thank the soldier someday that he, along with many others, helped protect my freedom. I want to go on the journey with them. 
So much energy is lost. So much love is failed to be given when parents don't recognize the purpose and the calling that God has for each of their own children. If they're walking with Jesus, if God has called them to something honorable, whatever it is, blue collar, white collar, if they're walking along with Jesus, you get beside them, go with them, enjoy it with them, help them discover the design and the purpose that God has for them. Because in the hands of a Christian, every vocation is sacred. Every kind of work, every kind of pastime where God is brought in can be sacred, can be a blessing to others. This is the design that God has for the human family and the family of faith that is the church. Because parents die, because not all moms and dads are loving, because not all moms and dads are present, God in his grace gave us not only physical families, but a family of faith to help us put our faith in Jesus as soon as possible, and then discover who God made us to be within his family. The third thing that a godly example can do for you, the third powerful blessing and benefit that a godly example can give to you and to your children is this. It encourages us to keep growing up through God's word. Second Timothy now, at the end of the letter, Second Timothy chapter 3. Paul's closing words to Timothy, evil people and imposters will become worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. True then, true now. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Notice, he's asking him to look back. Timothy can't see the way forward. He can't imagine life without Paul. So Paul tells him, since we can't look ahead, look back. As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, because I'm coming to one of the most important and foundational scriptures in all of the New Testament. Verse 16. But I wonder if you've ever noticed verse 14 and 15. Paul says to Timothy, you know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you have your notes, read the rest of it with me. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. 16 and 17 foundational verses. If you don't know them, memorize them. All scripture is breathed out by God. When you open your Bible, you are as it were face to face with God. God's own word is spoken to you. But did you notice what Paul said earlier? You know the people who taught you the scriptures. Since you were a baby, since you were a tiny child, the scriptures were read over you. The scriptures were explained to you. Remember who taught you. You know them. Continue in what they taught you to believe. What you've believed at this point, stick with it. What does that mean? It is not scripture alone. God in his sovereignty gives us his word, but he also gives us each other. As a gift, God wants his word to be taught, breathed out, fleshed out in families, in in the community of the family, of a mom and a dad raising children, and in the community of the faith. 
And all of this is in the middle of the reality that Timothy is facing trouble, he is facing false teachers, and now his mentor, his spiritual father, who called him his beloved child in the opening words of the letter, now Paul is going to be killed and Timothy will be left all alone. What is Timothy to do? He is to look back at the example he was given. He is going to remember those who taught him because church truly, when we experience adversity, we will need community. Remember that. You don't want a lone ranger faith, this highly individualistic me and Jesus alone, me in privacy alone with my Bible. That is not the entirety of God's design. Jesus wants you and taught you to go off in secret and pray to your father who sees in secret and he will reward you in public. He wants you to have a personal, deep, and abiding faith in him. He wants you to have a relationship with him that is between you and he alone, but that is not all he wants. He knit us together in the family which is his church. Think of the pictures of the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the household of God. We are God's temple built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles and the teachers to whom Christ first gave his word. We're together, in other words. If I can give you a simple forensic, a simple application that God has really brought crashing into my life, I spend far too much time with my boys enjoying and sharing other things with them and not nearly enough of his word. I want him to remember for life if God does the normal and the blessed thing and gives them a life longer than my own, I want them when I'm long gone and in heaven, I want them to remember the times we shared in the word of God together. I want my boys in their old age to look back, God willing, to their own children and their own grandchildren and remember those who taught them beginning and including those in this church. My older son came to faith in Christ at this church taught by his Sunday school teacher. We had put endless seed, endless teaching, endless prayer into that child and it was a Sunday school teacher in this church who closed the deal. Fantastic. Exactly as Jesus designed it. You don't, it's not only that you don't have to do it alone, you're not supposed to do it alone. You need community, you need friendships, you need people close because the same God who gave us his word and gave us physical families also gave us his church so that we could grow up together. What am I trying to tell you? Moms, dads, spiritual moms, spiritual dads. A godly example can encourage your kids, your physical kids, your kids in the flesh, and your kids in the spirit. A good example, a godly example can encourage them to follow hard after God, no matter how hard times get. This life isn't easy. Nobody gets out alive, in fact. Hard days are here. This letter to Timothy was written in a hard day to a tearful young man to teach him, Timothy, when you can't see the next step forward. You look back. You look back at your faith. You look back at your grandma. You look back at your mom. You remember me. Remember how God met you. Remember how Jesus saved you. And press on for that crown that God has promised everybody who loves him.
Whatever your children are, whatever they're doing today, mom, dad, grandma, Sunday school teacher, friend, anyone who has spiritual influence over the life of another, I pray that you will be encouraged and you will take the fuel of this text and use it this very day to reach out to others, to check on them, to bless them, and to pray for them so that together we can keep walking with Jesus. Let's pray together, please. Can I just ask you very directly, if you're just watching on a screen or you're here in person, do you know the way I've been talking about? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? If you don't, would you please trust him today? Would you please, in the name of Jesus, reject all the stuff that's been keeping you from him? Stop putting him off. Because it's not a decision, it's a person you've been putting off. Could I invite you to turn away from your sin and ask Jesus to be your Savior? Maybe God's been dealing with you. You know you're far from God. You've been pretending like everything's okay, but God has worked in your spirit and in your mind this morning, and you know that things are not okay, and you're ready to come home and claim God as your Father. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. Would you please do that this morning if you are not 100% certain that you're actually walking with the Lord? I'm not talking about hope so. I'm talking about no so. If you are not quite certain that you belong to the Lord, that Jesus is your good shepherd, that the moment after your death you will have eternal life, could I invite you please to turn away from your sin and ask Jesus to be your Savior in prayer in just about 30 seconds more when I pray. And if you do that, please let us know. Send us a text, send me an email, fill out the card that's in your bulletin if you're here in person. Send us the name Jesus to that text on your screen. And Christian, dear sweet mom, dear sweet grandma, have you gotten just so discouraged? Have you been afraid that your example's been wasted on your kids and your grandkids? Please don't give up. Remember that God in his grace can still cause them in times of trouble to look back and see you and because they see you, they'll see Jesus. And they'll turn to him. He'll turn everything around. He'll save them. He'll restore them. He'll bring them back to himself. Don't give up. Fight on. Use the breath you have to pray for them. Use the patience that God gives you, the self-control that God gives you to love them, to listen to them. Ask God for power to come into their lives as it is in yours to change their hearts and their minds toward Jesus. Someday they'll look back, Lord willing. First they'll see you, they'll remember you, your example, your words, your prayers, your warnings. Then they'll see Jesus and he'll make all the difference. Lord, I pray that it would be so. That you would encourage parents, especially moms today, that you would give them fresh hope that God, when the enemy tries to snatch this encouragement away, perhaps this very day, they would hold on to you and keep walking with you, Jesus. Stay on the path with you, giving that good example as a lifetime testimony that soon, I pray, and someday for sure, Lord, we pray that those far from you would look back, see them, and place their love and their trust in your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for this. 
I praise you for it. I ask that you would do more than I even dare to ask you. In Jesus' name, and Crosspoint said, amen. Moms, grandmas, I don't get it. What do I know? I'm barely a dad. How could I ever possibly understand the sacred task of motherhood? But I'm proud of you. We pray for you. We're grateful for you. You go love your family. You go love those around you in the name of Jesus and watch what he does. Have a wonderful day. May God bless you, encourage you, and show you his love and his grace. And before you leave, don't forget, go get your Christmas picture made at the photo booth. <laughs> Father, dismiss us in your grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs>